Hello, welcome. This is Dr. Scoff and the Prof. Hello, welcome. My name is Bryce Evans. I'm Associate Professor in History at Liverpool Hope University. Hello, and I'm Dr. Clay Granston, Lecturer in Marketing. And what are we going to be discussing this week? It's food riots, I believe. Yeah, so as regular listeners will know, this is a podcast devoted to food studies, food history. And we come this week to the food riots and food riots in history. Fascinating topic. Yeah, but before we get to that, we have to talk about the name of the show, which I know you love. So yeah, again, regular listeners will know I'm not a great fan of the title of this show. So every week Clay comes up, oh, listeners come up. Well, listeners now. Right in, you, that pile of mail you get yeah, from yeah. listeners where they <laughs> yeah. uh, propose alternatives. So go on. I've got some brilliant ones this week. Uh, one of my friends, well, I say friends, one of our listeners, they're all our friends, I came up with Time Team. As in T-H-Y-M-A. As in the herb, yeah. I think yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah, and you know, great pun of the great archaeological Channel 4 series here <laughs> Indeed. In, in Britain, Time Indeed. Team. Okay, any, any others? I got, uh, yeah, I came up with two others, uh, and they're film-based. Yeah, how long did these take you? Did you hours. spend a lot of time with Hours this? and hours. Yeah. Hours. I've been sleepless nights coming up with these. Uh, snack to the Future. You like your film puns, don't I you? I do, yeah. Snack comes in Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah very good. Actually, and yeah. uh, Dine Hard with a Vengeance. Do you know, I think Dine Hard is really good. <laughs> it's really good, isn't it? Dine Hard, Dine Hard 2, Dine Hard with a Vengeance, yeah. Dine Hard the later one. Die Hard 5.0. Yeah. Uh, Die Hard, I think, is actually really good. I'd be willing to, uh, if we hadn't already named the show. Well, if we hadn't, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good, Die Hard. Did you come up with that all, did, all yeah, on yeah, your yeah, own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. I'm suitably impressed. Yeah. Well, should we move on to uh, the, the, the sort of theme of this show? Well, seamless transition, because seamless Die Hard, of course, is a violent movie. It is. And we're talking about violence around food today. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, as was famously said... Uh, a revolution is not a tea party. Okay. Uh, Mao. In history, food riots, revolutions, a lot of time, have been over the, the price of bread. And at this point, I'd like to introduce a theory which has been used by historians to explain the food riot in history. And it's the theory of moral economy. Is this all food riots? Well, historians used to write about the, the mob in general in history. Okay. Whether they were smashing up things to get food or okay. whatever as being drunken, disorderly, mob mentality. However, there's a turn in the history writing, really in the 60s and 70s, where you start to get a sort of new left history, a Marxist-oriented, but not Marxist with a capital M, history, Okay. which emphasises this idea of moral economy. That The mob in history, if they're rioting for food, is not just doing so because they're hungry, not just because they've got rumbling stomachs, okay. but because someone is setting the price of bread too high or adulterating the bread okay. or weighing the, the bread deliberately wrongly. So it's this notion of the moral universe of prices has been infringed upon. So injustice. It's about social justice, yeah. And it's a theory about the transition of really feudal societies to capitalist societies and, okay. and the tensions. So... Basically, it boils down to the mob in history, food rioters in history, people getting angry, smashing up bread shops or whatever, are doing so because they feel they have social justice on their side. Well, I, you, see, you see, before we get too deep into this, hmm. I was looking at food in the news and I was trying to find something around food riots. Hmm. And the last food riot I could find was in Venezuela. Is that the last sort of large food right, 2000 and I think well, eight, nine, something I'd, like I'd that? Imagine, I'd imagine they're still going on now with the crisis in Venezuela. Yeah? Yeah. 
Well, I found another one which wasn't as wasn't as serious, but I thought I'd I'd, I'd bring it to the table anyway. And that was uh, this year, uh, January, mm-hmm. where there was uh, food riots in. Uh, well, I say food riots. There was riots around a food yeah. in France. Yeah. So uh, I think it was Intermarché, the the supermarket in um, in France, dropped the price of Nutella by something like three euros. And there were videos all over the internet of people just going absolutely bananas and fighting each other for, for jars mm. of Nutella. Mm. I know it's probably not the same as, as what you're talking about, but um, I, I quite enjoyed uh, the BBC put a, a great tagline on one of their stories, which was, um, all of its stock was snapped up within 15 minutes and one customer was given a black eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's... Food, I suppose it's a food riot. It's, well, it's, yeah. Of course it's slightly different, because that's a modern consumer economy. It is, it is, yeah. Whereas our food riots in history, where they, they're generally peasants who depend on bread to, to live. And it was just bread, was it? Or? It's often bread. Um, it's, it's essentially... The theory of moral economy has actually been applied to developing or third world societies here, which okay. is why when you mentioned context of Venezuela you see this in Asia East Asia Africa as well today when people are very much dependent upon a staple food and that food price for whatever reason goes up right the perception of profiteering of middlemen of price justice being infringed can often trigger a riot so slightly different to our French Nutella riot but but as well over the issue of the price of food and like we were saying the price of bread the price of food has been responsible for revolutions throughout history. I think the Russian Revolution... Was that over bread? Well, when Lenin talks of, about the, the demands of the workers at that time, but, you know, most famously, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, yeah. the, the French Revolution. Okay. Uh, famously, you know, Marie Antoinette let them eat cake when told, well, if she said it or not, we're not yeah. sure, but when told that they were rioting over the price of bread. Well, I, I read somewhere that it was, the translation was slightly wrong, that it was let them eat brioche. Which is a type of well, some some historians say she never actually said it at all. But in a way, if you go to the theory of moral economy, that's not important. What's important is the mob perceive that she did, right? Right. And it's that it's almost moral economy is about the mob, uh, their perception of what of rights and wrongs. So it's not just they're hungry, they're a drunken rabble, the rumbling of hungry stomachs. It's the rightly or wrongly the perception of an unfairness around the pricing of food and injustice. So it's not just I mean. You mentioned that in the 60s, 70s, there was this theory of moral economy. Mm. I mean, I've read in other places that sort of a rebuttal to that would be that it was actually over necessity, that they are, in fact, hungry. They can't afford Mm. food any longer. And actually, that's one of the reasons or potentially the main reason why they've risen up. Yeah, I I think that's definitely to do that. Well, the guy guy who sort of formulates the theory of moral economy, a guy called E.P. Thompson, we're going to come to him later, I believe. In your favourite, yeah. He's one of my favourite historians. He's he's a Marxist-inspired historian. He says, yeah, of course, necessity and price and people just being hungry affect things. But he says, if you want to charter food rights on a graph, like an economic historian might look at prices up and down, he says that's as stupid as looking at a sexual tension chart of, of, you know, if you feel more horny you're more predisposed to commit a sexual offence he says you can't look at history like that it's about perceptions and culture and the ideas governing those sort of broader factors so it's an interesting one I I debate this with my students you know do 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 food rights happen does any right happen because people are just greedy 
drunk and hungry yeah or is it because they feel their moral universe prices are too high and they have a social right on their side and i assume this builds up over time this isn't just a breaking point that suddenly happens as a food riot it yeah. sort of builds i get the prices go up slowly over time or they jumped up in in history yeah and in the pre-modern world the, the argument that thompson says is on at times when you've a lesser well-developed state yeah a food right is not seen as a terribly bad thing by the authorities sometimes really? they're quite regular and you think about it, it it eases off a bit of social tension the baker gets beaten up or whatever <laughs> um but yeah. that's better than bloody revolution yeah against the state so it, it's an interesting thing i mean we can debate this a little bit more i think you're we're going to continue the gallic theme yes we are yeah we're yeah, yeah. going to uh get on to sort of issues around the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you said about food riots, like, I kind of thought about the Marie Antoinette uh, famous quote about um, let them eat cake. So I sort of, I've tried, and I'll, I'll talk about this after after I go and prepare what I've got about my failures. Fantastic. Yeah. Your, your failures? My, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, yeah. right. Okay, right. We'll see you in a bit. Okay, we're back, and uh, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed with myself this week. Um, normally, I cook something. I actually cook or and you prepare something, but the tables are starting to turn over the last few episodes. I cooked the last time. Well, you you yeah you you chopped some things together and, and you made a lovely pink mush. You're trying to tell me you haven't cooked anything this well, week. Well, I tried to cook. I Nothing. Did, no, but from, I, I did cook for hungry rice. I what I did is I, I thought, predict a riot. <laughs> I predict a riot. Listen, I actually was going to go full beans i was going to make something truly spectacular i was going to make mm. a mille fruits, which is a which is a, a french dessert Ooh la la. with with three layers of phyllo and it was i was going to try and make my phyllo i was going to get, really go go you know mm. full beans mm. and uh it went terribly wrong okay. uh, the first one burnt at least you can talk about it it's good to talk about it's it. i'm not happy though um so the second one it just didn't work yeah and the third one i completely lost my rag and threw it in the bin Okay. So what I did is I went to the nearest patisserie and I got us a, a milfui. Uh, the reason I picked a milfui around the food riots, the connection with it anyway, mm-hmm. is a connection with a exceptional French chef. I think you can probably say that about quite a lot of French chefs called um, Marie-Antoine Carême, mm-hmm. who was the first celebrity chef. And the link with him and the uh, quote that you mentioned earlier from Marie-Antoinette uh, let them eat cake. Alleged, alleged, quote, yes. alleged quote. Uh, he was born just before the revolution. He was about eleven years old. I think seventeen ninety four. That would have made it mm-hmm. roughly. I say, uh, and he was abandoned by his parents in the middle of the revolution. Yeah, and he became well. He he started working at a low level in in sort of uh, with cooks etc. And then he opened up his own patisserie. And then he started cooking for some of the uh, larger houses in yeah. France. Uh, he was even uh, the personal chef for one of the diplomats of Napoleon. Mm. So, I mean, he is well-renowned, exceptional chef. And there's a theory in general, isn't there, about the birth of French gastronomy, the French restaurant, French excellence in cooking, well, stemming from the revolution, yeah? From the revolution, yeah. Uh, the change, certainly, around that time. The mm. idea that back then the big houses were the places where people used to have the extravagant food and the poor yeah. Yeah. didn't really... Things like peacock and whale and strange, strange yeah. weird and wonderful. Um, and, and at that time as well, it was all feasts. So people used to eat large feasts, which is the à la Francais. So all of the all of the starters... And all the at ones, once. All at once, all over the table. And Carême, in his later years, used to create enormous 
beautiful centerpieces. Um, mm. and he was he was a big fan of architecture. But it's and... also the democratization of good food, right? Post revolution, because before that was yeah. restricted to Louis in the fourteenth century. Yeah, yeah, Versailles, of course, of course, yeah. Then you get the democratization of that, yeah. And then it changed slowly. So around his lifetime, the idea of the Alla Russo style, which is the courses that we know now, mm. had been introduced, started to be introduced, but didn't quite get into full production. Alla Russo being the the continuous courses, yes, like, like we know exactly. today in restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. So can that, I try this cake? Yeah, now? go on, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm getting hungry here. So this is this is. I mean, it's it's an app. Oh, it's brilliant. Wow, that's a great. Mm. Don't want to sound like great British Bake Off, but that is really good. Very nice texture there. That's really nice, good. Well, nice, let's pretend I cooked that. Nice soggy that bottom. Is that is amazing. Well done, Clay. Pat on the back. That is very nice. So, Karem, Karem, um, this mm. is the, the Milfui was something that had already been around in in um, it already been around in cookbooks. Some mentions of it. And Karem himself. The Rice Krispies um, in there. <laughs> rice Krispies. Yeah, there is. There's a layer of Rice Krispies. No, there isn't. Don't be ridiculous. Tell me, Karem invented Rice Krispies. Historic piece of, uh, of of patisserie. Mm. How dare you, sir? It's delicious. It is absolutely fantastic. But Karem, you know, he 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 was um, he came up with the four mother sauces. Mm-hmm. So that the sort of start of uh, and Escoffier carried this on. Yes. So yeah. the bechamel, uh, the velouté, which is like a light broth almost mm. and then you mix in with some some uh, some flour and then there's a couple of others that I, I'm, I'm not too familiar with but the alamend so it's a light with lemon yeah. and eggs in it and an espagnade so espanole the, sorry Escoffier you would have right. built on this because he talked he did, about he the, did. The, he, the he built on these sources, yeah. he did yeah yeah so amazing man Karen absolutely amazing and uh, as I said he he, he was he was sort of the first celebrity chef as well, mm. um, and if anybody wants to read about him, him and the Scoffier, if you're into if you're into French chefs or you want to you want to uh, sort of read about the history and get into the history of, of cooking, this cake is so good. It is really good. Well done. I am listening. I'm yeah. demolishing it. <laughs> so oh. check them out, Scoffier Karam. If you're really interested in food and want to know about the the grandfathers, the the, the big chefs, and mm-hmm. how everything yeah it stems from these two Goliaths, really. Cool, cool, very interesting. So we're going to um, clear this up, or you're going to eat all of it, I imagine, um, and then we're going to go to uh, your favourite part of the show after this. We're going to go to Book's Corner, yeah. and um, I believe you've formulated, and you were mentioning about formulating a new jingle for I Book's have formulated a jingle, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm really is, happy about that. It's quite exciting. So we'll go with you and the flute, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what, um, what delights you've got in Book Corner for us. Super, okay. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome to Books Corner. Well, just hold on a second. I've, as we mentioned before, before we get into the the joys of Book Corner, I was thinking about it. I've, I've listened back through the episodes, and we need to spice Book Corner up a little bit, basically. And we need to. I think. Why do you? What What could be more spicy and exciting than books in Book Corner? <coughs> How do you mean we need to spice it up? We just need to make it a little bit more jolly, a little bit more. I think people need need to feel good about it. Okay, I, f- I always feel good about it. Well, I know, but you, not, not everyone has the same feelings about books that you okay. that you do. Okay, So I thought a way of doing this would be to create its own jingle. Yeah. And I thought I'd get somebody famous to introduce it. And I actually went and spoke to somebody famous. Yeah. And recorded, and they, well, they, they recorded a nice little jingle for you. So I got 
possibly, I think, the most jolly person that I know. Celebrity endorsement of Book Corner. Yeah. Okay. Fire you ready away. for it? Ho, ho, ho. This is Santa. Welcome to Book Corner. Be good, children. All right, then. Uh, what do you think about that? Was was that it? Yeah, it's Santa. Jesus. What? Jesus. Ooh, we're bringing a bit of spice. We're bringing a bit of, you know, jolliness to Book's Corner. <sighs> anyway, moving on. Moving on very rapidly. Uh, Book's oh. Corner this week. I want to talk about the man we've just been discussing for much of this show, E.P. Thompson. E.P. Thompson, hero of the British New Left in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Big campaigner for nuclear disarmament. Really? Very right-on guy. Oh, cool. But this great book, well, great, he's responsible for some great books as well, but he writes a great article in which he elaborates on moral economy. And it's uh, a journal article, so an academic article, but very readable. Uh, The Moral Economy of the English Crowd in the 18th Century. Uh, he publishes that in 1971, I believe. It's in it's the 70s, old, anyway. It's quite odd, but it's easily searchable. It's and accessible. And accessible, yeah. And it's just a, a really good elaboration of what we've been talking about earlier. And to, I've actually invented a way to sort of summarise what Thompson's getting at. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little taster of this. So we're going to go back to the 18th century. What's going on? Well, we are in an English village. Where at what? What do you mean? We're in an English village, r- rural England, 18th century. Peasants, well, pe- well, are they peasants? Yeah, they're, they're labourers, rural labourers. Where, where are we going with this? Um, we're in, we'll just keep with it. Okay. They're annoyed because the, the, not only has the price of bread gone up, it's got darker and coarser, and it's a smaller life, and there's suspicions yeah. that there's been some tinkering with the weight. Essentially, they think there's some profiteering going on. Okay. Now, I'm a food writer. I'm going to assume this wrong. I'm going to be a food writer as viewed by historians before Thompson came along. So I'm, I've just smashed up uh, a bread shop. Yeah. Throwing the weighing scales all over the place. It's a, okay. it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess in there. Right. Don't go in there. It's a mess. Don't, and uh, why, you asked me why, why have I done this wanton act. Why have you done this heinous act, sir? Well, I... Uh... I was hungry. What's happening? What do you mean? I'm giving you an example of pre-Thompson okay. historian, okay. how they view right. the mob. Okay, right, okay. Now, would you like me to assume the identity of a, a, a food writer post-Thompson, post-the moral economy theory? If we must, yeah, yeah, of course. Ask me again why I've created this awful mess. Why have you created this heinous mess? There's pastry and, and bread everywhere. Well, I may have carried out some wanton destruction here, but you see, there's a lot of profiteering going on. Okay. A sign of the new capitalist times that are coming in, and I'm uncomfortable with that because it's infringing my moral universe, (laughs) in which many of these norms derived from Bible norms and values around fair price and social justice have been infringed over this year, price rises and hikes in the price of bread. Right. So I'm not just a drunken, hungry moron. Right. I am actually a moral economic actor. <laughs> and thanks to E.P. Thompson, I've been saved from the condescension of posterity. That's incredible. 
Does that help you understand it a little bit more? It does. Do you, you do this... When, when a student comes and pays nine grand, this is what they get. That wasn't... I just... Luke, that wasn't me. I, in some ways, I felt like I really took on that. Are you proud of method acting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel really I kind of occupied that role. And in any case... So Tesco's is smashed up around the corner, is that what? If I were me. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think maybe that was, dare I say, a bit more authentic than Santa. I mean, what the hell has Santa got to do he with brought, He brought economy? joviality and jolliness to, to a very drab dank area of our podcast okay well anyway i think that's my first recommendation for book corner secondly a book building on thompson's theory by a guy called james c scott called weapons of the week and scott takes thompson's idea of moral economy which is all about 18th century english food rights and scott takes it and applies it to the developing world today so he looks at southeast asia and subsistence economies as there are many around the world still today, okay. and how agitation in those parts of the world is in some ways analogous to what Thompson's talking about, with some tweaks. So it's quite an elastic theory, moral economy, and it really helps us ex- explain the food riot in history. Maybe not the Nutella riot, no. but those no. couple of books, readings, are, are really good, really quite accessible. So the first one's a journal article, article and yeah. the second one's... Is a book by James C. Scott. Again, published, I think, late 70s, 80s, Weapons of the Week. Uh, and, and you said these have been built on through time, have they? Is moral economy still yeah, it, something that's well, it's slight, used? Or? It's slightly old hat now, but there's, okay. there's, it, you know, it's a theory which, I think, to give it its due, uh, it, it restored a lot of agency to individuals who hitherto were just dismissed as a rabble. And they are the majority of people in history. So it's definitely worth engaging with if we're thinking about violence around food, the food riots. So when we were talking about Venezuela, would do people use the moral economy as a sort of narrative for that? Or You'd imagine so, wouldn't you? Because in places like Venezuela and other examples, I mean, there was food, a lot of food riots around the world in 2009. When you have... Uh, Rises in staple food. Was it 2009? I feel like I've got 2009, yeah. It, yeah. Uh, sta- rises in the price of staple food can, combined with uh, a lack of legitimacy in the political regime, yeah. which is what we're talking about. I think in some ways you can see flashes of moral economy. Thompson himself, we have to say, parked it in the 18th century. He said okay. it's to do with, it's a sort of pre-modern feudal thing. But right. interesting to engage with if we're thinking about food rights. Great. I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? Full of cake... Full of cake. Full of cake. And now uh, I've, I've seen a new side of you. After smash up the local patisserie. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, guys, uh, thanks for listening. This is Dine Hard with a Vengeance.